This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are discussing the 1984 masterpiece Metallica's Ride the Lightning. Yes, indeed. Our the, the first time we have ever covered a band twice, and that's because this is uh, the first of our new Encore episodes. So... As regular listeners know, a few uh, while ago, a few episodes ago, we decided to revamp our Patreon perks. Uh, and one of those, you've already heard one, and that was the um, the show that we did with backstage Patreon pass, CJ right? Lines, the Backstage Pass show, that's right. Uh, and this is another of those, and we are calling them Encore, which was actually suggested by listeners. Um, so thank you all for that. And the concept here is, you know, we've said many times, we only cover each band once because there are so many bands to cover so many albums to cover which makes it excruciating by the way on our end because most of the bands that we've talked about over the volumes that we've had so far are favorite bands of ours and to pick your an album one to talk about from your favorite (laughs) band is like brutal right so uh if you think you guys are frustrated by it think how we feel (laughs) you don't think i want to talk about every megadeth album ever made of course i do so uh yeah it is it is brutal so this is uh this is a welcome addition for us too but i i love the idea of us uh still staying true to the spirit of the podcast in that in general we don't do that but once per volume we have the opportunity to revisit a band that we've already talked about, and we're going to go out on a limb and guess that listeners may have other albums from some of these bands that they might want to hear us talk about. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, so we've decided, well, we actually decided before we came up with the concept of the Encore episode to do this album, this album has been sort of on the list as this is what we're going to do for the bonus track for volume three because it fits your theme for a long time. Exactly. And that's the other thing because it fits my theme of albums that changed metal. And this is, I mean, I don't think there's any question that ride the lightning is one of the most influential albums in the whole history of metal. It shook up. You will get no argument here, sir. Yeah. Um, I mean, you'll get some arguments, but it's not about that. (laughs) But not about that. So as I say, it was already on the list for us to cover. Uh, as the bonus track for this volume, we thought, oh, that'd be cool. Cause we know that lots of listeners have asked us, are you going to do any more Metallica albums? Because we infamously kicked off with, of course, St. Anger, which a lot of Metallica fans don't like. Yeah, and so and lo- which is not fair to Metallica fans in the grand scheme of if we were only going to talk about them once, uh, right. even though it made for great discussion. Oh, it, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have no regrets about covering it at all. No, I mean, neither. But it's understandable that Metallica fans have been asking us for, you know, basically since we started the show, are you going to do another Metallica right. album? Make this right. A better Metallica album. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we thought well, that would be a nice bonus, you know, a nice oh, treat as a bonus track. We thought, but also, what if we did the best one? Right. But then also, uh, as I say, when we came up with the idea of doing the Encore episodes, we realized that it kind of fits. It's actually a really good fit. So... So yes, this is what the Encore episodes will be like. We will basically do it the same as any other episode, except yes, it will be about a band that we've already discussed. So we'll probably skip over some, although I'm sure with this album in particular, not all of the history behind it, um, uh, and focus more on you know the album and the music. Uh, and then starting from the next volume, as well as the regular listener choice poll that we do, we will also run 
an encore poll with the same, you know, same idea that basically every listener, every patron, sorry, I should say, gets to nominate an album for us to talk about from a band that we've already covered. And then we'll pick one randomly. And that's the episode that we'll do somewhere in, you know, the next volume, what volume four. Right. So you're essentially getting three sort of Patreon bonuses there. There's an encore episode, there is the backstage pass episode, and then there is the listener choice episode. Absolutely. And all of these, I reiterate, are only available to patrons. So everybody can listen. You know, we will never, we will never close off access to the podcast. You know, the, the podcast will always be free for anyone to listen to. But if you can support us, if you want to support us, then you will get these extra bonuses. You get to take part in the polls. You, you know, random patrons will be selected and invited to come on the backstage pass. You know, that's the the advantages, the things that you get, the perks, as we say, the patron perks of supporting us on Patreon. And just as a reminder, that is, of course, at patreon.com slash thrash it out. So just a couple of bits of follow-up. Firstly, we have one new patron since our last episode, and that is Peter Hansen. Thank you, Peter. Welcome. Um, And also a correction. Last episode uh, in the Neurosis episode, I got it wrong. I said that Scott Kelly... Uh, the one of the guitarists and singers of uh, singers, haha, vocalists of um, Neurosis also records under the alias Harvest Man. I got that completely wrong. It's actually Steve Von Till, the other guitarist and vocalist in Neurosis, who records under Harvest Man as well as under his own name. I just had a complete brain fart, and it wasn't until after we'd finished recording that I thought, wait a second, I got that. Did I say that? And I checked back and I was like, oh, yes, I did. Um, But their solo stuff is actually kind of quite similar, which I think is why I got them mixed up in my head. So if you've been looking for it, you'll, you know, yeah, Harvest Man is actually under Steve Von Till. Um, Or if you've been listening to it and wondering why it doesn't sound like Scott Kelly, that's why. But that was a fun episode, the Neurosis one. It was uh, a good one to end the volume on, I think. Oh, absolutely. And again, uh, for a group that I had really no experience with, definitely an album that i came to appreciate and so i have some comments from our facebook page as we usually there do there's a, a great discussion on this album um a good amount of neurosis fans on there but also people who kind of came to this in, in a way that i did and didn't have much experience with right it. So, just completely blank yeah so Stuart said i have to say i still prefer times of grace but i do appreciate through silver and blood more now might take a couple more listens to properly get into it i noticed that times of grace also uses bagpipes or some similar droney wind instrument uh on the last you'll know he said brian's description of how he got a handle on the album was interesting i wonder if the desire for a narrative is related to how much you hear the lyrics that's something i rarely do is i find my mind follows the shape of the sound rather than the lyrics maybe something like a left-right brain appreciation of music, telling you something about how your brain is affected by music. He said, I don't know, but a useful data point is probably that one person whose lyrics slash singing sticks out to me, uh, he said, is Peter Hamill, uh, Vandergraaff Generator, whose clean singing voice is more discordant than most. Well, and I think, I mean, you know, who knows? uh, Who knows what goes on in the depths of our own minds? But I suspect also that, it has more to do with the fact that you are a writer and you grew up as I did in an era when songs were kind of expected to tell a story. You know, that's, that's fallen by the wayside quite a bit now. And I'm not making a value judgment about that, but in the seventies and eighties songs were almost expected to have a little narrative and to tell a story. So, you know, having grown up with that, I think maybe that's part of why, approaching it in that way made the album easier for you to digest i would probably agree with that 
And uh, there was other people who were fascinated by that discussion, too. Jack said, uh, Brian's idea of using a Lovecraftian narrative to help him get into the album is fascinating to me. I hadn't made the connection, but this album finally clicked with me while I was farming some blood echoes in Bloodborne, which is a game... <laughs> For the PS4, for those that don't know, uh, it is uh, technically part of the Soul series. Uh, he said, through Silver and Blood just seemed to mesh perfectly with the game, concepts of life and death, apocalypse, repetition, and droning noises, and Brian building the Lovecraft connection cemented it for me even more. Um, I could totally see that album being something that you could put on in the background while you were playing Bloodborne, for sure. Yep. <laughs> um, let's see what else we have here. Oh, Phil said, whew, okay, finally got through the episode. He said, it felt much like I did getting through this album. It was hard, and at times it felt like a slog, but at times it felt revelatory. I haven't worked this hard to find my way into an album since I picked up Dream Theater's Awake in 1994. He said, upon the opening three minutes of Through Silver and Blood with the tribal drums and mechanistic backing soundscape, I knew I was in for a journey. It wasn't a journey I was sure I wanted to take, though. <laughs> there is so much about this album that feels so self-indulgent. I mean, four minutes into the opening track, and it still is really just the intro. He said, my first instinct and reaction was eye-rolling. Another, we're so deep band that we are too cool to write actual songs. And for sure, I get some of that feeling with this album. There is so much about this that I shouldn't like. But God damn it, if there wasn't something about that opening song that wormed its way into my brain yeah. and had me coming back to it. Through Silver and Blood, the song was really my entry into the album. It really is a perfect opening track as it tells you everything you need to know about the album. Strap in, let go, take this journey. The album is soul-crushingly heavy. Words that come to mind while listening, atonal, dissonant, crushing, brutal, sludgy, atmospheric, and surreal. He said, in the end, I can't say I love this album, but it definitely put me in a different mind space. I don't even consider this album an album with songs. For me, it is a soundscape meant to put the listener into a mental space. And he goes on to say some other things, but I thought that was a really interesting perspective from someone who we know just through his interactions with us and listening to the show that he has tastes that run more along mine with 80s hair metal oh, yeah. and stuff like Phil's that. Phil's tastes are like diametrically opposed to something like Neurosis, yeah. So, I mean, I really appreciate listeners like right? him taking the time to yeah to appreciate and get into it i think that's really admirable i, I, I just love that uh dan said so i was expecting to totally hate this album just because i thought neurosis was the kind of band that my uh super true heavy extreme metal friends like and that isn't my kind of thing <laughs> then i listened to it and i was maybe halfway through the first track and i was in it kind of reminded me of if tool and sleep covered a hand zimmer movie soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to be the most strange and yet somehow fitting description of that album. Uh, Scott Parker Hall said, I tried. Anguish ensued. Worse than sane anger. <laughs> well, and I was, but this episode is, you know, it's not for Scott exactly, but it Scott, is, I, I hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. yeah because uh, Scott is one of the Metallica, the very, very big Metallica fans uh, in our listeners who has pleaded with us time and again to do another Metallica album. Totally. And Scott will call me on my Megadeth bullshit. So I know that yeah. he's eliciting with a fine-tuned <laughs> ear to make sure that I'm not giving Dave Mustaine too much credit or right. taking anything too much away from Metallica. So I'm sure I'll get a report card at some point in time after we go through uh, the episode. Episode. But back to Neurosis, Don said, I really dug this one. I've circled around Neurosis for a while, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to dig in and really check out the album. I was often I often confused the name with Neurotica, who I saw at OzFest a year ago and did not care for at all. Interesting. I've never even heard of them. I know a song, Neurotica, but uh, I didn't know there was a band called it. Uh, Daniel said, okay, so I didn't listen the whole way through because, whoa, a challenge to say the least. <laughs> he said, I like drone music in general, but post-metal 
kind of sort of a new genre for me. But adding a narrative might help me listen to the album. I like concept albums and having a Lovecraftian elder being thingy coming down makes this album seem more palatable. So there you go. There Just you apply go. your yeah. narrative to it. If you, it doesn't have to it can be whatever narrative you want. Uh, Melinda said, it's been many years since I listened to Neurosis. I never had a strong opinion of them. And now I remember why. I really love the mood slash tone and the heaviness of their aesthetic, but the vocals are a big issue for me. I can't get into yelling vocals. I kind of hear a dude screaming at me from across the parking lot when I listen to this. Uh, if it were exactly the same lyrics with a death metal growl, I'd be hooked. Still love the opportunity to hear it dissected. Yeah, uh, that you was guys ended up having a good conversation about that. Right. Well, because I, I responded saying, like, for me, oddly enough, it would be kind of the opposite. Like, if this was a sort of Opeth-style traditional death growl, uh, the neurosis rather, rather than the sort of yelling uh, growl vocals, I, it wouldn't be as interesting to me. I prefer the hardcore style vocals with this sort of music. But then, you know, that goes into what I've talked about before with my issues with sincerity in growl vocals. And you know, I think most of that can basically be traced to having grown up with Lemmy. <laughs> well, not having grown up with Lemmy, but listening. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, I'll give you a couple more and then we'll wrap it up. Andy said, uh, this album is absolutely brilliant and I'm really glad Anthony put us all onto it. It does seem a bit odd to me that the record strikes so many of you as unlistenable or difficult. This is a lot more what metal is to me than many of the albums covered up until now. And I would think so for younger listeners in general. He said, I, I, and this is where we're not friends anymore. He said, I mean, I love Judas Priest as much as the next guy. Well, maybe not as much as Brian, but they are kind of the metal equivalent of dad rock, right? <laughs> uh, metal, as we've said before, yep. metal is a broad church. So Andy's on probation and right we now. Wel we welcome all worshippers. <laughs> uh, he's on probation right now. We'll, we'll, we can talk about more about that later. Uh, Lenny said, I was so sad when this episode was over. Albums that are so woven into your musical tapestry that you can hear the parts in your head that Anthony and Brian are describing. Favorite part of the episode was a discussion on Aeon, my favorite track. Uh, I'm Team Anthony there, but because the build pays off for me. The synth is euphoric over the dread. I can see the struggle for some people when this click, but when this clicks, it is the soundtrack to a personal slash global doom that only this album can properly describe. Dio bless this podcast, guys. So, <laughs> yeah, like that, that was that was because you said that uh, you know you you liked Aeon, but you felt that the build up was more interesting than it, the, that it didn't pay off. Yeah, right. Than what than the climax. Whereas I, yeah, I felt the the other way around. So, but yeah, it's uh, it's great to get it's great to cover an album that brings out such diverse reactions in listeners as well. I really enjoyed that. And I think you answered this, but I'm going to say it just to give you a chance again. Uh, Torrin said, holy hell, guys, I think this is my favorite album I've been introduced to through this podcast. I fucking adore it. Any suggestions on what Neurosis album to get into next? So that's probably a question that other people might have. Yeah, I I actually can't remember what I said to Torrin now, so I may well, well let's see. Let me let me pull down myself. <laughs> those things. You said, uh, Lenny said, my money would be on Times of Grace next. Anything surrounding through silver and blood and you agreed although the more recent stuff from given to the rising onwards has been pretty darn heavy again so it sounds like times yeah, of that's... grace may be the next place to go right well i think that was the next that may have been the next album after through silver and blood or if not the direct next maybe the one after it was because uh, yeah i remember why i said that now it's because there's a later period with albums like sun that never sets and the eye of every storm where they they're still very much neurosis, but they go a little bit lighter. There's more quiet passages. There's more acoustics. There's m more drone, if you can believe that. Um, 
Uh, and it's just not that they're mellow because they're, they're never mellow, right. but they are just not as loud. Uh, and so if one of the things you like about, uh, through silver and blood is just how loud and brutal and sort of, you know, aggressive it is, then it's, yeah, those earlier albums. And then, as I say, they've kind of come out of that slightly quieter, um, phase into things like given to the rising, uh, and fires within fires, the latest one as well, to get really noisy again, really loud and aggressive again. So, if that's what you like, you're going to like the sort of the early stuff and the more recent stuff more than that kind of mid late two thousands period. But I would still recommend those albums because it's it's a bit like my thing with Paradise Lost. Like no matter what they do, even when they you know sort of tried doing an electro album, it still sounded like them. It was still them and still recognizably their music. So if you like them, you will probably, if you like one album, you know, you'll probably like all of them. Yeah. And there are a good handful of more comments on the Facebook page about that episode. So again, if you, if you're on Facebook, but you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, there are not only great discussions of every album that we talk about on the show, there is a constant stream of, Hey, check this album out, check this band out. If you liked this last episode, you might like this band. Like if you're looking to find new music and be able to talk about it with people who absolutely love metal, go to the Facebook group. There's yeah. great discussions every single day, people posting concert picks. Uh, someone just posted. In fact, let me just click on this because I saw it this morning. Speaking of Megadeth, uh, Colton posted a picture <laughs> that he took with Dave Ellefson yesterday, ah. which is, that is one of my dreams to meet Dave Ellefson simply because uh, everything I've seen and read about him, I mean, he just seems like a really cool guy that is very accessible to fans and stuff like that. So I would love to one day meet him. And he does a lot of interviews with other musicians as well. And I think that's kind of cool. He seems to be very interested in the creative process that other people have. And so he pops up quite a bit, you know, whether it's writing for a publication or doing an interview for another publication. Um, so yeah, I'm He's very, a musician's very musician, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. totally. And yeah. You're right. He does seem like a really nice, cool guy. Yeah. And, and obviously, uh, incredibly talented. Super talented. And so uh, I'm very jealous of Colton. He also met John Five, uh, who I would also like to meet, but certainly, I mean, we're talking about Dave Ellison here. <laughs> so yeah, as you say, I mean, the, the Facebook group is it's such a great bunch of people. Uh, you'll find loads of new music there, you know, good conversation to be had about metal. Uh, and as we've said before, you know, and we reiterate all the time, one of the nicest things about it is that Everybody is just so cool, you know? There's no flame wars. There's right. no crazy arguments. Nobody is outright dismissive of another person's taste or whatever. It's, you know, we welcome all comers. We make sure of that. We have had one or two people wander in and try and be belligerent, and we sort of nip that in the bud. Yeah, uh, and we they, show them And they the tend door. to go away again pretty quickly, <laughs> yeah. Um, because we just, we all love metal and I, you know, it doesn't matter whether you love hair metal or goth metal or progressive metal or metal core or hardcore or whatever, you know, thrash or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's all metal. We can all get along, you know? Right. Because you, we want to expand that love. Right. I mean, we, we want to be, well, that's one of the reasons you and I started the show is because we have a Venn diagram of metal taste, but very divergent metal tastes as people have heard, you know, over the past volumes of the show and yeah. just the stuff we're able to introduce to each other of things that have been around for decades that we just yeah. never got into. I mean, not only do we have the whole, you know, history of metal, 
we have the future of metal. And so that that's what's great about the Facebook group is everybody seems hungry to not only celebrate what they grew up loving and what they currently are super into, but to find something find that they awesome haven't new seen stuff as totally. well. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is great. So yeah, that is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out if you haven't already joined. So, Brian, yes. ride the lightning. What ride an album. The lightning. Uh it is the best Metallica album, and for a lot of reasons for me. But it was—I uh, think it's an album that many people discovered after Master of Puppets. So I don't think, certainly from a sales standpoint, it never got the recognition initially. It peaked at 100 on the Billboard chart, so it never—it did not get the reception that Master of Puppets would get two years later when it hit number 29 on the Billboard right. chart and, and went platinum first. Um, but it did end up six times platinum as Master of Puppets did. So it's it's certainly now regarded by many as the best Metallica album, if not one of the best Metallica albums. Um, for me, as someone who believes that my Metallica has four albums, which is Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Injustice for All, this is the best of those albums, in my well, you opinion. You include Justice in your in your four picks? Wow, man. I do, because I can't punish it for the awful production. <laughs> um, but it's sort of the it's the end of an era for me. You know what I mean? But in reality, to, to me, there are there are two masterpieces, and that's Kill 'em All and uh Ride the Lightning. Um not just oh, because really? Dave Mustaine not, not was Master involved. Puppets. No, um I think because so because I think most people, most sort of diehard old school Metallica fans would say th- this, you know, Lightning and Puppets are the two quintessential classic Metallica albums. Yeah, I would think, I, I'm sure you, there are, most people would agree with that. I'm sure most people, for a lot of people, I bet Master Puppets is number one. Um, oh, and maybe Ride the yeah. Lightning is number two and, and uh, Kill 'Em All is number three and, and maybe not even so. Um, I don't hear Kill 'Em All get talked about as much. It's usually these two. It's usually Master of Puppets and, and Ride the Lightning in terms of early Metallica. Yeah. Um, and then as we've had many discussions about on our Facebook page and uh, everywhere else, there are people who came to Metallica. We have listeners who are a bit younger than you and I who came to Metallica in the Bob Rock era and yep. so have a completely different relationship with Metallica. But I'm speaking more you know, as an old person who... <laughs> you know, has that what is a fan of early Metallica and obviously, you know, Mustaine's influence. What I love about this album is really to me, it's the pinnacle of um and a lot of people are gonna think that's ridiculous, but it's the pinnacle of the creativity of Metallica in this one album. Because you had Cliff Burton, who had more credits on this album than any other album. Obviously, he was there was three of them that he was involved with, but he is credited on, I believe, uh, six of the eight songs on this album. So you have six Cliff Burton heavily influenced songs. You have two that are directly credited to Mustaine, although there's a lot of debate about how much more influence he may have had, but, but he's given credit on two of these songs. You have Kirk Hammett bringing over some of his Exodus influence to uh, to this album. And you generally have here a Metallica where other people were allowed to contribute to the sound, um, which you see fading away as early as the next album. Because yeah. on the very next album, you have uh, Cliff Burton getting three credits on Master of Puppets, and then it's pretty much all declining from there. It is the Hetfield and, and uh, Ulrich show. And so here, you, you truly have a 
collaborative effort where people were bringing not only stuff from their old bands, but were bringing Cliff Burton. It's clear, I think, when you look back at the history that Cliff Burton might have even been a better musician than Dave Mustaine in terms of people who had... To hear you say that, that is something. So I want to pull up a quote. Where did I see it? Well, while you're doing that, I'll mention, for for people who don't know the history, uh, famously, uh, James Hetfield and Lars, but especially James, didn't really know much about music theory or sort of how to build counterpoint harmonies or the concepts of, you know, musical scales and harmony fifths and all that sort of stuff. And Cliff did. Cliff knew all that stuff. And it was after Kill 'Em All and before this where Cliff basically taught James music theory. And it really shows on this album. I mean, you know, if you wonder why this album is so much more rounded in sound, than Kill 'em All. Kill 'em All is it's a burst of energy. It's it's a you know it's a it's a great album in that it is just absolute you know fist in your face. Oh my yeah. god, what the hell just hit me? It's speed and violence. But nobody would ever call it right. But nobody would ever call it well rounded. Nobody would ever call it you know a sort of comprehensive album. Uh, whereas Ride the Lightning is a really three dimensional, well rounded album, and I think a lot of that can be attributed. To Cliff Burton, yeah. 100%. And again, I'm probably talking out of my ass, but I do, uh, in terms of like him maybe being a better musician than Dave Mustaine at this point, because I think when Dave went and started Megadeth, and I think when you listen to Killing Is My Business, and you can get those bingo cards ready, I'm not going <laughs> to... Take I'm a drink. I'm <laughs> not going to relive the end of Mustaine's tenure with Metallica. We, that's been so well covered in the past, and it's just, it's not worth getting into a discussion about again. But... When you hear the classical elements of Killing Is My Business, it was clear in that first album that Dave wanted to show very clearly his musicianship and how they were doing something that was more complex than anybody else was doing in that genre. And so, but in Kill 'em All, it was more aggression. You know what I mean? It was yeah. the, that that first Metallica album was just punch you in the face aggression. And, and Cliff Burton and Kirk Hammett said in an interview about Cliff, he said, Cliff studied music in college. Uh, he said, I had a grasp of music theory, thanks to Joe Satriani, who was teaching him at that time. Uh, but Cliff went the whole length and learned musical theory and everything. He was way into harmonies. James really absorbed the dual harmony thing and took it to heart. He made it his thing, but it was originally Cliff's. Cliff also inspired James greatly uh, on counterpoint and rhythmic concepts. And so, yep. you know, when those guys talk about Cliff Burton's contribution to their sound they talk about him being sort of the 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 composer you know and so that to me when you have him being so heavily represented on these songs on this album and then you still have some of Mustaine's influence and and some that are directly attributed to him on this album plus we have a Kirk Hammett at this time who we haven't seen all of his tricks yet you know my biggest knock on yeah. Kirk Hammett over the years is that he gets very samey in his soloing and and things like that, and he becomes um, his his addiction to the wah pedal. I think <laughs> takes. I, I, I honestly feel like it takes away from um, being able to appreciate his sound more. Um, and I've really come around on Kirk Hammett, especially since seeing how he got treated by the rest of the members of the band. So I'm not uh, a Hammett hater, but I think that he was still fresh here. I mean, this is an album where not only is he getting to contribute more, but he's getting to take, in some cases, 
uh, music that Mustaine wrote and and build off of it. And you can yep. hear that in some of the solos, where you can hear stuff that clearly is something that Dave Mustaine wrote, and then Hammett builds on that. And that's kind of awesome. I mean, that's in a way, Hammett got to collaborate with Dave Mustaine around some of these songs. And that, to me, produces something that they never would produce again. And so there's a lot of little elements and ingredients to this album that I think make it Metallica's best album. It's it to me is their most collaborative album. It, it is an album where uh, Lars's drumming gets markedly better on this album. Oh, and, well, and, that's and, the and other I, thing. Talking about people being taught stuff, uh, I read when we were doing. I didn't know this before, but when I was doing the research for this episode, I read that uh, Fleming Rasmussen actually gave Lars lessons yep. on you know beat duration and uh, you know keeping time and things like that. Here's because Lars had a from, tendency to speed up as the song went along. Exactly, <laughs> and here's a clip from a Loudwire article on that, which is probably what you read. Um, they had one of the biggest problems they had going into recording "Ride the Lightning," and the, and they recorded it in. Um, I think it was Rasmussen's studio, and there's a name for it, but King yeah. Diamond had Sweet just recently... Sweet Silence. Sweet Studios. Silence. Um, yeah. uh, King Diamond had just recorded there. Uh, Rainbow, he had worked with before, and so the, this Danish producer, Rasmussen, the first problem they had to solve was that Metallica's amps had gotten stolen. And so James was distraught because there was a particular sound that he had gotten to with his amps, and he was very adamant that he wanted to recreate that. So they spent a lot of time in the early days of recording this album, recapturing the sound because James wanted to have a guitar sound that was like no one else's. And so they had to, to solve that. And then it, so it talks about that in the article. And then it says with the amp problem solved, Rasmussen discovered a much more vexing issue. Ulrich played inventive drum fills for sure. But when he tried to keep a straight beat for a prolonged period of time, he would speed up for some parts and slow down for others. Uh, And then Rasmussen said, I thought he was absolutely useless at first. He, during an interview, he said, the first thing I asked when he started playing was, does everything start in an upbeat? And he <laughs> went, and, and Lars's response was, what's an upbeat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it says, with the help of drum roadie Fleming Larson, Rasmussen gave Ulrich a crash course in basic drumming. We started telling him about beats. They have to be equal length of time between the hit and you know, all that stuff. Uh, fortunately, Ulrich was a quick learner. And with some songs, uh, while some songs required more takes than others, Rasmussen was eventually able to track the drums with the right tempo without the aid of programs like Pro Tools, you know, which had yet to be invented. Right, and yeah. so he does give credit to the fact that Ulrich was a pretty quick study, but he had to do that work up front with Lars in order to get him to a place. And to Lars's credit, I, I feel like this is his best album on drums. I honestly do. I wouldn't disagree with that, actually. Apart from, well, you could argue the Black Album, but of course we know from the uh, video of the making of the Black Album that, you know, those drum parts are built out of about 30 different takes all exactly. spliced together. And so, you know, here, I really do, like, I feel like collaboratively as a band, to me, this is my favorite sounding Metallica album. You can argue about some of the the overall production. There's there's a lot of reverb on it, and that was something that was that was talked about in terms of Rasmussen style, but what he got from these guys and what he captured in terms of their energy and the level of complexity that they jumped from a lot of the stuff that they had done on Kill 'Em All is quite amazing. And so, and it's also cool that one of the more complicated pieces that Mustaine wrote was saved for this album with Call of Cthulhu. So yep. you, you have all of these things kind of coming together to make an album that is a quantum leap from the complexity of Kill 'Em All but retains a lot of the driving force of Kill 'Em All, and t- to me, that's what makes it 
you know, the top. And, and also, I, I feel like uh, Hetfield, Burton, and Mustaine are really the foundational architects of what a lot of old school fans consider Metallica sound. And then things went in a different direction after those influences fell away. Because after Master of Puppets, you had no more uh, Cliff Burton. And you could start to see the turn in Injustice for All. And it just continues. Bob Rock, you could argue, has the more influence than anyone outside of those three that I just mentioned uh, in terms of the sound, you know, when he comes in. And so this is just a, a, it's interesting that it's called like ride the lightning because it is truly lightning in a bottle. It is (laughs) that capturing of like everything that Metallica was that nobody else was. Right. Which is why it was so influential. Um, Totally. uh, The other thing uh, that Cliff introduced to the band, of course, was Lovecraft. Uh, because Call of Cthulhu, you know, wasn't called that. It was just an exactly. instrumental piece. Uh, and yeah, it was apparently Cliff who introduced the rest of the band. To, and of course, Call of Cthulhu and The Thing That Should Not Be, two of their greatest and, you know, probably most often played live tracks as well. Yeah, um, and there's a one, what is the, uh, what's the name of the song that is a Lovecraftian one on the new album on Hardwired? I can't remember the name of it now, but they revisited that. Oh, I don't know. Uh, right, and it's a great yeah. tune. So, yeah, you know, Cliff really was a, a huge influence on the band, as we know. Largely, I agree. Um, I, you know, maybe not with some of the specific details, but I, this and actually, and this will get me crucified, this and the Black Album are actually my two favorite Metallica albums. Because the Black Album, I feel like, is kind of, you know, you can argue whether or not it's faithful to, you know, Metallica's roots and all that, but just as an album, as a piece of rock metal you know hard rock heavy metal music it is almost flawless i won't say flawless but almost flawless um so i really do love it and this however as you said is just the absolute epitome of the energy and aggression that metallica had but combined with maturing as songwriters without losing that energy which is my like master of puppets is a great album and i do love it but i feel like it suffers from that a little. It feels almost too considered. Do you know what I mean? It feels yeah, almost no, as I, if I they thought about it for too long and maybe reworked the songs a little too much. And it doesn't, some parts of it just don't quite have that same spark of energy that Ride the Lightning does. Whereas Ride the Lightning feels like a band just running downhill, firing on all cylinders. Let's try this. Let's do this. Nobody's ever done this before. Way. And just, and at the, at the end of it, out of it comes this amazing album that does sound like nothing has ever sounded before. Uh, and that's another reason why I, I think it qualifies for the albums that changed metal because I mean, Kill 'Em All sounded completely different and new as well, but it didn't have that massive influence partly because it was, as we said, so sort of one-dimensional musically, whereas this is such an accomplished album. Uh, You know, it has that energy, it has that aggression, but it also has, as we said, this sort of, you know, three-dimensional music, uh, musical aspect to it in the songwriting and the performance as well, frankly, that uh, it took hold within the metal community. And this was the album that suddenly had you know, every metal band and their auntie going, shit, we should sound like that and spawned a whole, or not even bands, but people in their bedrooms, you know, and spawned a whole world of imitators. Uh, So many bands were formed or changed direction because of this album, because they wanted to sound like this. And, you know, my 
the the thing about this show that I love is like, you know, if you if you put Kill 'em all and Master Puppets and Ride the Lightning. If you threw them all in front of me and you asked me on different days of the week, there there's probably times where I felt like Master Puppets was my favorite one, or that I felt like Kill 'em all was my favorite one. But what I love about this show is that you know my approach to getting prepped for an episode of this is to really live with an album for a long period of time, and and that's sort of one of my favorite things. And that's when you remember, and that's when all of this stuff bubbles back up to the surface of really what they've accomplished on this album. Because you mentioned like uh, the Black Album, which you know value judgments of the Black Album aside, you could when you look at the complexity of what they're doing on this album versus the Black Album. The Black Album is a simpler album. From oh, yeah. a musical standpoint, than this album is, it's much more. You know, the the from a sonic standpoint, it's much more well produced and certainly uh, much more refined and set a whole new template for you know the next decade plus to come for Metallica. But what they're doing on this album, their second album, is really it's it's just again like a quantum leap from what oh, yeah. they had done before and well, and just adds and like layers. They're practically inventing a genre with this album. Um, you know, I mean, not quite, because we know that the thrash scene, you know, was already sort of quite vibrant by this time. But despite that, you know, most of those other bands were making music that was like Kill 'em All, that was just straight up fast, sure. heavy, aggressive. They heard that uh, and said, this is what this is. And right. Let, let's just do that. Exactly. Whereas this album was Metallica going, we can do more yeah. than that, actually. And uh, so you and hear the a lot of these other bands. Be- no, but the songs will be better for it. I think that's the important thing is like this yes. album shows the importance of songwriting. Like, you know, like I've said before, I love straight up fast, heavy, or even not fast, you know, very heavy music. I have nothing against one dimensional stuff. Lifelong Motorhead fan, you know, if ever there was a sure. one dimensional band. Oh, ACDC. <laughs> you know? I'm, a, I'm a diehard right. or, ACDC fan. Or even Absolutely. Slayer, you know. Yeah, oh, so, 100%. Uh, yeah, no problem with that. But this album really does show the importance of songwriting as, you know, kind of saying you don't have to do that all the time. And if you don't, if you have these little dynamics and if you have, you know, some quiet sections and you consider things like your musical harmony and counterpoint and all that sort of stuff a little bit more, you can get something really special that will last the decades, that will last the test of time out of it. And it's not easy to do. You know, you can try and fail, of course, sure. many bands do. But when you try that and succeed, that's your holy grail. That is when you get an album like this that, I mean, what is it? God, 34 years later? Yep. Still sounds amazing. Yes, the production's a bit dodgy in places and what have you, but it doesn't matter because the songs no, are so good. You listen to it and you're like, Jesus, this is still pretty fucking heavy. And it, and it cre- for me, it created... It spoiled me, right? Which is why <laughs> I went to Megadeth after this. Because, it, and again, this is my personal opinion, but I feel like Megadeth built on where this album was. I, I, f- I feel like when Mustaine went and started Megadeth, he took that complexity and that added um, sort of attention to to that stuff. And that's the direction that Megadeth went. And so for me, like I was like, yeah, I want more of that. That's what right. I want. That's what I started chasing. Whereas I feel like when you start to look at, um, which is so interesting because right, you, you you would think that Metallica would look at this album and be like, wow, when we have multiple contributors and everybody is 
you know, putting in to these songs and adding layers to what we're doing. Look at what we can do. We produce a masterpiece. Yeah. We produce a masterpiece. And then what what was their reaction specifically after the death of Cliff Burton was to pull everything away from everyone else save for two people. Right? So isn't that crazy? Like that that's amazing to me. That to me is one of the great mysteries of Metallica is <laughs> that they I, had it. You're right, but I suspect, you see, you, you mentioned it there, and I think that's the key. The death of Cliff, I think, is, and obviously, you know, I don't know these guys. I'm I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, sure. but my guess has long been that it was Cliff's death that did it because, yeah, as a way of coping, as a kind of coping mechanism was, because death, Cliff's death was so senseless so random you know it's been talked about before was it hammett who he swapped bunks with yes it was right. he had won a game of cards and he got to pick the bunk that he slept in that night and he picked hammett's bunk right and if he'd lost that game or if he'd picked a different bunk it would be somebody else who died instead it was just so unbelievable incredibly random that i suspect that as a reaction and probably a subconscious one but nevertheless as a, as a reaction james and maybe lars as well but probably mostly james i think wanted to take control wanted to yeah. go what well, i can't control these things like my one of my best friends has just died and there was nothing i could do about it but what i can do is control my music control the yeah. stuff that i'm devoting my life to and will devote my life to and i think that that's as i say you know who can say but that's always been my suspicion was that that's why he you know james and lars kind of became this core unit yeah. and kept everything under such tight control for a while until they allowed Bob Rock in anyway. Um, when I think a, of, their, their of that as a way of, you know, kind of feeling like they could exert control over their lives in some meaningful way. Yeah. It reminds me of like loving something to death, right? Right. Where yeah. you, like, it reminds me of that scene from Tommy Boy where he's explaining to the waitress where he takes out the, the, the roll, the bread roll and says, this is my shiny new pet and I'm going to love it and I'm going to snuggle it. And then he kills it. Because he just can't, he, he squeezes it too hard. Like that, that to me feels like what, what they eventually did. It's like they started from a standpoint of, well, let's protect what we created. Let's, let's keep, you know, the legacy of what we've done and, and not screw it up. But by holding onto it so tight and progressively getting more controlling about it, you end up killing it. You end up destroying, you know, the thing that you, that you created. But in any case, um, this episode is about celebrating Ride the Lightning. Yes, yes. And not some of the later musical choices or the falling out with uh, Dave Mustaine, which are all <laughs> things we could do total separate episodes on, and I'm really going to try and not derail into that. But uh, Well, and we kind of did that a little on that episode of Unjustly Maligned, where we talked about Rust. So, <laughs> uh, Yes, uh, so it's, to me, again, what I love about this album is that it was a collaborative effort, and you can hear that. You can hear those influences, uh, and there was a great interview, actually, that uh, Cliff Burton did with Rock Hard Magazine. I don't know if you remember that one, but Rock Hard Magazine in 1986 uh, interviewed Cliff Burton and talked about his influences, and he said, my influence was, would be, uh, with bass playing, it would be Getty Lee, Geezer Butler, Stanley Clark, Lemmy, because of the way he used distortion, he said that was different and new and exciting. And also certain guitar players had an influence. He said, he said everything Thin Lizzy did 
had an influence, right? And I think you could hear some Thin Lizzy oh, yeah. in uh, in Cliff Burton's playing. So when you look at, and even the other members of Metallica would say, like, yeah, his his influences were a lot of uh, stuff that other people would consider just straight up rock. And uh, so that was his. That's what he brought to the table. Is he brought this just different, this completely different perspective that when they let him contribute and when he was part of that. It, it does. The, the saddest thing about this is you think about, man, what could they have done with Cliff Burton? You yeah, know, moving well, forward, like what that, could they have done, or even like what could they have done, like with Dave Mustaine and Cliff Burton, like Mustaine and Cliff Burton writing well, songs but, together? But would they have survived? And no, they wouldn't that's have. All, but yeah, <laughs> you know, from a musical standpoint, you just you you think about those combinations, and because even in in the sort of way that they are almost collaborating. For, through a divorce, you know, here where, you know, they're not collaborating at the same time. They're not necessarily writing stuff at the same time, but just those influences sort of melding together. Like it's magic, man. Yeah. But like I say, yeah, you, you got to think, yes, it, it would have, it could have been great, but the chances are that we actually probably would or never the whole band could have album. disbanded after the next exactly, album because yeah, you had yeah. what you would have ended up with is you would have ended up with four strong personalities, Mustaine, right. you know, Burton, uh, Ulrich and Hetfield, and and I just, yeah, <laughs> that couldn't have sustained itself over a long period of time. So no, um, but boy, as I say, so, album, sometimes you got to do what you know what helps the band survive. Uh, you know, yeah, as I've totally. argued about, as I've argued about the load and reload albums before. You know, I I truly think that if they hadn't made those albums, Metallica would not have survived as a band. Um, and I mean, obviously, since you know, then there were other issues around their survival with you know, as we know over the years of various dramas, but I really think in terms of just staying together musically as a band, no matter how much many of their diehard fans may have hated them, I really think they needed to make those albums just to get that shit out of their system. Um, well, and they've sold almost 60 million albums in the U S alone. They're the third highest selling U S artist since they started keeping track of that kind of stuff. And wow. so clearly from a survivor standpoint, you know they they're doing pretty good <laughs> they do all right i mean they, but but you're absolutely right they figured out a way to weather all of the changes in the landscape yep. and still be considered legendary and still be selling out stadiums and oh, st- still so, be one of the most successful bands in the world yeah yeah i mean and, and you know for all intents and purposes this most recent album from them hardwired was considered a quote-unquote comeback album it was considered their sort of return to form by by the mainstream certainly and um, so they they just continue to find ways to bring it all back together, no matter what changes around them. Yeah. Um, so going back to this, album, what, you were talked about the production. And I mean, it is a little dodgy in places. But one of the things I noticed listening back to it, you know, with a more careful ear, perhaps. I mean, God knows, you know, we've all heard this album a million times. Totally. But, but listening back to it, as I say, with perhaps a more careful ear, uh, specifically sort of, you know, with the idea of, okay, we're going to talk about this in depth. One of the things I noticed was... This predates Rain in Blood by two years, remember? And yet, uh, Lars's drums and the kick drum are actually really clear and powerful, uh-huh. which, as we said when we talked about uh, Slayer in, what was it, episode two? God. Um, uh, that wasn't always the case up until, uh, you know, that sort of sound that Slayer had and, you know, kind of not invented, but really clarified of like, oh, this is how you record really, really fast double kick drums without them becoming a muddy mess. Um, and while Lars's drums here aren't as clear as, um, I've forgotten his name. 
Slayer's drummer. Oh, Dave Lombardo. Lombardo, that's it. Yep. While they're not as clear here as Lombardo's were on the early Slayer stuff, they are a lot more clear, even during the double kick sections, than many other albums of the time. Um, and that's, yeah, when you put it in context, at 1984, that's fairly primitive, by today's standards, fairly primitive recording techniques. Oh, I, and I don't think that, I think the drums sound great in this album. I think the acoustic guitars sound great in this album. I think my biggest knock on the production of this album would be that the actual electric guitars feel muted at times. That's where I struggle yeah, I, with I this would album. Agree, yeah, yeah. Because um, even the bass sounds pretty good on this. I actually. totally. I mean, you can totally hear the. And I generally turn the bass up on whatever you know system I'm listening to the music on. But you can hear the bass in this album, which is fantastic because the some of the fills that Cliff Burton does and just like some of oh, the yeah. bass lines that he has are just absolutely. Well, and that unbelievable. A lot, of, a lot of that, I think, is actually the Phil Linnett influence. Talking about him I, loving Thin Lizzy, one hundred percent, dude, one hundred percent. He plays, and also I would say Lemmy, right? Because those are guys who play bass like it's a lead guitar, as if it's a guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. man. And so, I mean, just look at the the inference, uh, the you know, the beginning of "For Whom the Bell Tolls," right? And so, right, which everybody it, thinks is a guitar. I know, which is crazy. So, <laughs> like. Yeah, like it's that mentality of like there is no this is as much of a lead instrument as a rhythm instrument and so well, when there, he that, has a chance to explore that it it's amazing. There's that video from and I can't I don't know what it's from but some festival of some kind uh, some outdoor concert where there's a video of them playing I think it is for whom the bell tolls um uh where the camera is on Cliff's side of the stage. Uh, somebody, I think somebody posted it on our Facebook group, you know, a while ago, maybe a year ago or something. Um, and so, you know, you can see Cliff throughout most of the performance and he's all over the place on Unreal. that. And in a good way, I mean, yeah. like, you know, you see his, he really was a virtuosic player. Just Finger amazing. picker too. Yeah, right. Yeah. And all fingers. Yeah. No plectrum. Just Which incredible. Man, having, having that sound in With a fingers, thrash yeah. band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How great is that, dude? Like how that's so underappreciated, like just in terms of the difference between sounds there. And man, he, he was truly just absolutely amazing. Yeah, he was one of the best. Um, all right. So let's get on to the uh, the album and the tracks. So I, I actually <laughs> is my, my confession. I actually kind of had trouble making notes on tracks for this album uh, at some points because because I know it so well, me too. And because uh, I love it so much, I kept getting distracted and just headbanging along. Yep. <laughs> and then you thinking, oh shit, wait, I'm supposed to be making notes. <laughs> I could have done better notes on the memories that each of these songs brought up than the right. actual music <laughs> themselves. <laughs> because I like I was having flashbacks to me riding my 10 speed bicycle with my Walkman on, just riding around the neighborhood <laughs> listening to this album over and over and over again in my in my Sony Walkman. I had a, oh, I had man. the yellow sport Walkman that you could it, basically it was like waterproof and you could flip oh, the I cover over those, and yeah. snap it and uh, and that was the one that I listened to and, and so uh, yeah it just like <laughs> it brings up a lot of memories of being introduced to this album and just uh, listening to it over and over and over again so it was you almost had to retrain yourself to listen to it. Right, because, because you, you hadn't so listened well, yeah. to it, yeah, to, for for that purpose for so long. It's just embedded in your, you know, internal jukebox. 
Right. I mean, you get, you know, you get a dozen old school Metallica fans in a room and between us, we could probably, you know, acapella sing the entire, like hum the entire album from start to finish. Do you know what I mean? Assign everyone an instrument or a sound and you could probably get an exact duplicate of the album because we, we all know it so well. I was playing air guitar to this album this morning. As I was, I, I'm not lying to you. As I was listening to, I, I try to give it one listen the morning that we're going to record. I give it one last right. listen, and I, I finished probably well, about yeah. ten minutes before we started recording. And just the end, which we'll talk about of Call of Cthulhu, uh, <laughs> just like so awesome, man. So yeah, yeah. It, it, but it is hard to actually sit back and like take a more academic look at it right, when you're so sort of familiar with the album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's kick off. So track one opening, of course, with fight fire with fire. acoustic intro he i know he, uh, kirk said this main riff was a was around on the kill em all tour i remember hearing it on a riff tape so the seeds were around even then the acoustic intro was something that cliff would play on the acoustic guitar all the time and i mean all the fucking time so apparently <laughs> this was just like one of those things that you know you pick it up and you play the same thing over and over and over again when you're just screwing around this was something that cliff played quite a bit but boy does it fit perfectly here Oh yeah. Well, and this is right. And that's, I love the fact that it was Cliff, you know, like playing and the decision to put that, to open the album with that. I mean, it, again, you know, it may not have been the first we've talked a few times about, you know, whether something is the first example and what have you, but it may not have been the first album metal album to open with an acoustic section, but it absolutely popularized it because I remember it, just everybody, Everybody was doing it after this album came out. And obviously they did, of course, they did it again on um, Master of Puppets. But after this album came out, suddenly every metal album opened with 30 seconds of, you know, semi-classical acoustic guitar before getting really heavy. It was, you want to talk about influence, you know, it was amazing. It just, everyone started doing that same thing. Yeah. And just the, think about this, right? So you're coming off of Kill 'Em All. 
Right, and an album that is completely electric from start to finish. Exactly, and just is just punch you in the face aggression, right? And so, man, I can't wait to hear the new Metallica album. I can't wait to get into the new Metallica album. I'm going to put on the new Metallica album. I've been waiting so long for this thing. Acoustic guitar. Yeah. How many Metallica fans at the time were like, what the fuck is this? And then before you can finish that sentence, right, before you can really get pissed off that this is not what you expected it to do, boom. Yeah, and just brutal, just yep. brutal, faster than than kill them all, punch you in the face. We fooled you. This yep. is what you're getting from this album, and it was like it just like that drawing back of the bowstring just makes the actual shot like just so much heavier. Yes, exactly, and that's what I meant about dynamics and sort of, you know, being yep. more rounded musically, yeah. And it is such a great intro, powerful, relentless, you know, with the stabs of rhythm on it. it is, it's like the undertow pulling the water back from the shore and then the wave coming crashing down. It is such, right, and the the low tone of the intro as well it is such a heavy riff. Yep. Uh, you know, again, even today, you listen to that, you're like, that is fucking heavy, man. Yep, brutal. It has a great chorus as well. This uh, song, you know, cons- which you wouldn't necessarily expect from listening to the intro riff, you know, or even the verses, but it's actually a really good and fairly catchy chorus, I think. Well, and uh, I'm glad you said that because I feel like this album cemented the anthemic, just like crowd chant choruses that Metallica yep. became known for with their, and you could see it every live show that they ever play. Like they do, they have, and it was because part of it was because of the range that Headfield didn't have at the time, right? So you you have almost like these barked choruses a, a lot of times <laughs> right. where it's where it's very sort of anthemic. Um, but as heavy as these songs were, there's a hooky, catchy element to a lot of their choruses that really just made people just want to see it live, you know, just yeah. want to. And that was the stuff where you raised your fist in the air and you, you banged your head and you screamed at the top of your lungs and stuff like that. And they, they do that so well. Oh yeah. I mean, if you don't raise the horns at fight fire with fire and then rapidly head bang during the, you know, yeah, the yeah, diddly, exactly, diddly, right. that follows it, you did, you're dead inside. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Totally. 100% agree. Um, you, you talked about this before and I think you linked to a video again on the Facebook page, um, about Lars's drumming. And it was somebody basically saying like, look, Lars is a better drummer than you think he is. Um, I'm pointing out how one of the things that makes him unique amongst, uh, metal drummers, especially is he has this, some of his rhythm choices and where he hits cymbals, you know, yes. on like second and third beats rather than first of all. And you'll notice he does that. And I think this might be the first time he does it. I don't think he does it on Kill 'Em All at all, but he does it here during the solo of all things. I'm telling you right now, like I'm I'm not joking when I say that I really truly feel like not only is this his best album on drums, but the drums in places are fantastic on this album, yes, and it is because there. of that. A lot of his his cymbal work, I would say, is the highlight, right? Because just when he hits the crash on certain parts of the song to and like sometimes one right after another to really drive home you know a part of a riff or or a turn or something like it's just it's really well done yeah well it's it's and again i don't i'm not necessarily saying that lars invented this but i think he did popularize in metal this idea and i don't have the musical knowledge to really sort of to give this whatever proper terms it may have but it's almost like 
a suspended note in a melodic sequence. And the idea of a suspended suspended note is that it kind of leaves you hanging and then you resolve back into your root note. And it, it's, you know, that's pleasing to the ear. It yeah. feels, to the Western ear anyway, that feels like it should happen and therefore you feel satisfied. And some of his cymbal work is like that. The way he, it's almost when he hits those, you know, two cymbals, one at the end of a bar, and then bang, you know, the next one at the start of the bar is almost like that, as if the the first yeah. hit is almost like a suspended note, and then the second symbol hit is the resolution. That's the root note again, because it will come in at the, you know, when the root note is playing in the riff. And again, I don't know whether he invented that necessarily, but that is something that is become over the years an absolute staple of metal drumming. If you pay attention to, you know, to metal drummers, you will hear that so much. And, you know, I wonder if he popularized that style throughout the metal community just because, as I say, by virtue of this album being so influential. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I'm thinking of like the main pattern of the riff where it's like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four. And sometimes he'll hit on four and five, like, yep. you know, in terms of the crash symbol, like boom, boom. And it's just really, it just drives it. Yep. I mean, and you. I mean, this isn't even necessarily the best. Uh, what I was talking about, necessarily even the best track that illustrates it. Escape, funnily enough, is actually uh, a track where he. Does I can't it wait to talk loads. about that song. Right, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so yeah. uh, after the mushroom cloud, boom. And about two and a half minutes is when when it sort of changes tempo, and they do that a couple times around the same point in the song. It was almost yeah. like they would yeah. get to like that two minute and thirty second mark, and they'd be like, "Okay, now we got to switch it up." Yeah. And, yeah, uh, well, and Metallica again. One of the things that they pioneered was the halftime middle section, which yep. you hear a lot on this album, and again became a, a staple of thrash. It's a stellar metal. effect. Oh yeah, I mean it works. Yeah, there's a reason they do it a lot. But yeah, it's the same sort of thing of like, okay, we've reached this point, and now this is what we do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. This is this is the like when you're they're, they're sort of putting the songs together. It's like, and here's where we switch it up. Yeah. But of course, because, you know, this wasn't an established genre at the time, you know, this wasn't the sort of the grand old genre that we think of as today. There's no reason for them to have thought, oh, but this is a cliche because, you know, they were practically inventing it as they went along. Yeah. And there's certain, uh, when you listen to the solo, which is a pretty ripping solo and fits in well with with the tempo of the song, but there's the... There's also a lot of the Kirk Hammett template in here. If you you can pick out chunks of this solo, and this is what you're going to hear for the next 20 years in terms of <laughs> you know his solos. But again, here on album two, still fresh. You know yeah. what I mean? Like still fit. Yep. Like so. So that that's why I think this is in many ways the best representation of him at this point in time because a lot of this stuff wasn't repeated yet. It was right. still fairly new. Exactly. Um, and you have to go back to that time and think about it that way. You can't judge it on what you're hearing on Hardwired that might be the same part of a solo that he played on Ride the Lightning. You know, here, um, it felt yeah, like he was just letting it rip. It, it's the same in any medium, isn't it? You can't, you you know, when, when something is so influential, uh, it's it becomes, it's easy to look back at it and go, oh God, it's such a cliche. But yeah, you have to remember, well, but it wasn't a cliche at the time, no, you know? it absolutely uh, wasn't. You know, Blade Runner, 
and the matrix to take two movie examples that like, you know, for the next five years, every fucking movie that came out afterwards looked like them. And it got to the point where now it does look like cliche, but at the time, no other movie looked like that, you know, or novels like Neuromancer or something, or yeah, you just, uh, you've got to take these things in context. Um, all right. So, uh, let's hit the mushroom cloud sound effect. Uh, explosion effect, <laughs> um, which is a great way to end a track, let's be honest. Without a doubt. Uh, and move on to track two, title track, Ride the Lightning. first one talk about a great one-two punch yeah to open up the album right i mean just the the drums on this song just just the boom boom with the riff playing over them so good it's almost a template uh you know you got the the powerful dramatic opening with the sort of you know with the lead stabs and everything and then that massive chugging riff uh and the riff itself is almost a template for thrash metal just in general you know i feel like you could superimpose this riff over almost any thrash track and it would fit (laughs) do you know what i mean right totally well and again you've got mustaine credited on this song with hatfield and burton and and ulrich and so that they were writing this template yep oh yeah absolutely um in some ways i feel and this may be slightly controversial i feel that this is like both it's simultaneously the most ambitious song on the album, but also in some ways one of the least sophisticated because it kind of, it feels as if they're finding their way, like stumbling around in the dark, finding their way towards building the long progressive songs with lots of time changes, lots of different riffs and stuff that they would become known for, you know, especially over the next couple of albums. Um, But this one it feels as if the parts have been just kind of like butted together without graceful movements between them. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. I don't know that I disagree with that. And again, I not knowing the intimate history of this, you know, uh, I believe that this was a song. I don't know if this was a song that they were playing out live before they recorded it for this album. Clearly it was mostly written before this album you know, started to come together because Mustaine is part of this. So with some of these songs, I mean, you don't know exactly like how much of it was tweaked or changed or, or whatever, but it could also be that too many cooks in the kitchen thing too. You know what I mean? That feel that makes it feel like it's a little bit, um, 
sort of piecemealed together. But yeah, that thing where it's like, we've got to get my riff in here. What about my riff? And yeah. Or like, this is what we have from Dave, but we have to build around it. Right. And so how are we adding on to that or what, how are we changing some of this stuff? And so, um, you know, again, I don't, I don't know enough of the yeah, details of like how complete that was before, but, um, I feel, I feel like the solo is a great example here of where this is a combination of Hammett and Mustaine. I'm when glad you, listen, you said that because yeah, this, when you listen this to the is... solo, you can hear the whole like first two thirds of that solo to me are very Dave Mustaine and then Hammett adding his pieces to that too. And all together, I feel like when you come out the other side of it, that it held together pretty well. But uh, again, like there's stuff in here that you're hearing that you'll never hear from Hammett again. Right. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is one of the rare early Metallica songs where I genuinely love the solo. Like a lot of Kirk's solos, I can kind of take or leave even in the early stuff. Uh, well, and the later stuff, frankly, but this song, much as, as I say, I mean, like I said, I think it's a really ambitious song. I'm not taking anything away from it. And it is a great, it's still a great song, but it's not as sophisticated as some of their later, longer progressive songs would be. But the solo is just fucking great. The, the solo and the whole middle section really work for me in this yeah. one. I think it's the best part of the song in some ways. I think that my favorite, I, I, I do agree. I love the solo in the song. Um, I, I love Mustaine's piece of it and I love Hammett's piece of it. And so, um, but that, the toms, just that that you know, thumping over the main riff to me is like what drives this song for me. And they come back to it at like four minutes and fifty five seconds. They come back to that, just hammering on the drums, and then ban it and dan it. It's so good. Yeah. Oh, they absolutely. That's the other thing. Yeah, they nail the ending of this because this is one of the most dramatic songs, not the most, but one of the most dramatic songs on the album, musically, I think, uh, which is another thing, of course, that would become a Metallica staple. And one of the things that makes them stand apart from a lot of their, or made them stand apart from a lot of their contemporaries was they weren't afraid to embrace a bit of drama, a bit of theatrics, uh, you know, musically, I'm talking, compared to, yeah, the straight-ahead sort of aggressive stuff that you had from bands like Exodus. Um, and... It, like I say, it really makes them stand out. And I think they nail it in this one. Again, for all its flaws on this track, it is really dramatic. And the ending, just repeat, you know, with those rising riffs, the same lead phrase that we began with, bringing Which it all so full good, circle. Which is so good, right? Because it's that yeah. whole, like, almost like uh, panic inducing, descending sort of, you know, uh, it's just those four, you know, those four beats, but they're so good. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know the elliptical nature of it. Yeah, brings the song full circle, and yeah, I, th- I think it's a really great ending. As I say, I have my pro- my issues with this track, but it is still a great track. Yep. Uh, and then track three, for whom the bell tolls.
Now, do you remember a few days ago on the Facebook page, I posted uh, a sort of a little teaser of my notes for this album. And one of them was possibly the best intro ever, Fight Me. I do remember that because and it, it was, sparked a whole discussion on our Facebook page. Uh, right, of what's the the best intro ever. Yeah, which, totally. Which was part of why I posted it without context, because I thought it'd be funny to see what people thought I was talking about. Because, of course, there was no homework. So, you know, until this episode is released, as we're recording, nobody knows that we're talking about this album. It's this track. I love the intro to this track so much you've got cliff's bass under the intro riff the bell obviously is just sheer melodrama you know sheer theater cliff's bass foreshadows the next riff like his bass goes underneath the intro riff but then it foreshadows the next guitar riff which is just brilliant um and then you've got that repeated circular lead over the top this constant loop while the chords underneath are changing which incidentally is something that Paradise Lost do a lot of, which is, you know, I'm sure has the interplay of that has informed my tastes over the years. But I just, I love the intro to this track. It is, I can't hear it and not play a guitar and air drums and bang my head. And I just love it so much. And uh, Kirk Hammett said that that intro was a cliff thing. He'd play it all the time. The rest of us would stiffen up and go, what the heck was that? It was completely his own creation. It's just this weird chromatic thing, the note choice. That's what right. Kirk said about, you know, this intro. But and clearly this song would not be the same without no. that. It, it is it is what makes this song as oh, iconic the intro sets as up it the is. Song. Yeah, without no a doubt. Um and again, man, just it, it's all over this album, but the Cliff Burton influence, right? Yeah. Well, and the main, even the main riff, I mean, you know, the intro is, like I say, I fucking love it. But the rest of the song as well, I do also love this. Oh, it's sure. one of my one of my favorite Metallica songs of all time because the main riff just grooves. It just really fucking locks in and grooves. Lars's drumming is really, really great on this track. Because um, it gets to breathe, right? Because you're hitting yeah. this chord and then it just, the chord just rings out and his fills in between and just even the rhythm that he's playing, like you, it just... It's this constant ebb and flow of I'm going to hit a chord and then you're going to hear drums, 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 and then guitars come back in. Like it is that sort of ebb and flow throughout the song where where it feels, um, whereas a lot of their stuff before felt compact, there's an epicness to a lot of the songs on this album that they just have room to breathe. And that I they think feel big. Yeah. Yeah. They feel big and, and, you know, give credit to Rasmussen for, for some of the feel of that as well. But certainly the way they structured these songs, they there's, they breathe more, even the faster and heavier ones, there's spots in them where you get to, you have time to find your footing. And yeah. I think that makes it sink in more. Yeah. Well, but as we said before about the dynamics, yeah, because, you know, you, uh, well, and, and like we said last time talking about neurosis, you know, no darkness without light, no, uh, silence without noise and right. you know, vice versa. You've got to have both things because otherwise one or the other just becomes the norm and no longer effective. You must have both for something to be effective. Uh, and that's really, I think, you know, what Metallica learned on this album. Um, Absolutely. this also has some of my favorite lyrics from James. Um, I mean, some great imagery, obviously, you know, based on the, the Hemingway story, but also some of his phrasing feels, and, and this is another thing that marked Hetfield out as a lyricist from a lot of other metal lyricists. And certainly in the thrash crowd was just the way he would phrase 
things like lines like for a hill men would kill why they do not know i mean oh it's beautiful you know that is so brilliantly phrased absolutely uh, i'm glad hit- you brought that up because this is by far my favorite vocal performance of james hetfield by oh, really? far yeah country mile like this the, the worst thing that ever happened is when he started taking more singing lessons and he <laughs> I, 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 to, i'm totally serious like there it, it his voice to me now is almost unlistenable like i it, i don't like it i like this james this, this sort of uh alternating between barking words and and you know just sort of scream singing them like i know that this was the, you know sort of the unpolished but but clearly a step up from the last album but it, his cadence his choices that he makes as you said about how he sort of delivers those lines like all of that i just love it throughout this album yeah it is it is a great performance um i might disagree about you know the sort of uh whether it's his best but it is a good one and as, as i say this track i just love in general so um but yeah he's he's phrasing the lyrics themselves the ending as well of this track i love how it ends do you i don't know how well you know machine head i don't know them super well okay right oh, hang on uh, put that down for a future episode then um <laughs> there, there is uh the first track on their first album on machine head's debut album davidian um ends with a repeated riff in a a time signature that means the second repetition of each riff is cut off slightly. Now, you know, tell me if that sounds familiar, because that's basically how this track ends. And I've always wondered if they sound different, but nevertheless, you know, I've often wondered if the, the end of that track owes this one a big debt, because again, may not be the first instance of, uh, of that in uh, a metal album and certainly in a thrash album, but you hear it a lot now. Uh, well, you know, and- you heard it a lot then as well, but I don't, I think it was the first track that Metallica did that ended in that way with a, a repeated riff that changes the timing each time it repeats. Right. And, and then over the top of that, like Hammett's, Oh, the wailing. Yeah. Wailing, lead, yeah. just sort of chaotic, like everything's going to hell, you know, sort of, ending as that fades out it keeps you it pulls you almost down the rabbit hole to try to keep hearing what the next what's the next iteration of that going to be and what's the next note that he's going to play like it even though it's fading out you're chasing it yeah yeah it's it's, i love this track it's so great great song so good i can just listen to it over and over again and have (laughs) yeah right right we've been listening to it for 34 years now so i think we've i think we are, are giving it its due absolutely all right and then on to track four Fade to black.
what can you say? I was just going to say, like, what do you, this is one of those songs that's hard to make notes on, right? Because yeah. you, what do you say about this song that hasn't already been said? I mean, it's a, it's a song that, you know, and it's, it's funny because the, the controversy around this album and the shit that they got at the time was that because of some of these choices, right? Because of some of these songs oh, yeah. that are not, yeah, yeah. that are not what people were expecting from them. But can you ever imagine them not having written this song now? Right, oh. I mean, it's a defining song for them, and so this is them. Uh, Not just for them, Th- right, this for song, everybody. This song launched a thousand metal ballads. You know, you, again, you want to talk about influence. This one track set a template for almost every metal album that followed for the next like decade. There right. wasn't a single metal album released, or barely anyway, uh, after this that doesn't have a ballad somewhere on it and a ballad that specifically goes acoustic, electrified, acoustic, electrified, electrified bridge, solo, acoustic to end. Do you know what I mean? It's but like so many of those bands and you, um, obviously you're, you know, this fail, fail at that. Right. Yeah. Whereas oh, it's, with it's this easy, band yeah. and this album, it fits perfectly within everything else that they're already doing. It yep. doesn't sound like a song from another album. It doesn't sound like a song from another right. band. It sounds like Metallica. And that is, I mean, that's what makes this maybe, and it's not my favorite song on the album, but that's what makes this maybe the most remarkable song on the album, is that it, they are able to still be Metallica and and play a ballad that yep. feels like Metallica. And so the parts where it's heavy, it's crushingly heavy. And the parts where it is, you know, acoustic and and where it, it slows down, it is so affecting from a from an emotional standpoint. Like it it is, and the the lyrics to it, like every part of the song is just extremely well done, and it fits perfectly within their entire sound. Yep. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I've actually in my notes I've put like, look, is there much you can is there much more you can say about this track? I it don't know. Great riffs. <laughs> Great solos, great chorus, great lyrics. It's well-performed. The second half is amazing. The way it revs up with those lovely thirds and soars into the distance. It oh is, my God. It's almost a perfect track. And that's quite apart from sort of value judgments of whether you like it or not. But just in terms of as a unit, as a song, it is almost perfect. It is just so, everything about it is so well done. Apart from the fade at the end, but <laughs> but when they get to the part where that riff changes, where it starts descending, did it end? Did it end? Did it end? Did it end? And the way that Ulrich chases that, yes, with the drums, yes, and not just the cymbals, but the snare too, like is so good. I almost like it better than the actual guitars. Like that, like like the the drums are just fantastic. Yeah, uh, throughout the song, but in that part particularly, like just his his ability on this album to drive important parts of the song home and to drive the the greatness of certain notes or riffs home is why I think it's his best album. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's uh, he really does do a great job on this album, and yes, on this track, um, I I think you can't have one without the other, right? Uh, but yes, it is. A great piece of drumming that, as you say, in the descending chugging bit. 
I, I one of my other notes on this was <laughs> Dimebag's entire solo oeuvre is based on this track. That's probably not fair. <laughs> That's not really fair, but it kind of came to mind and I'm like, you know, there is a lot of this track in Dimebag's solos. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can now that you say it, I didn't think about it that way, but I could certainly see that. Well, and you, you talk about bands that, you know, have tried to do this and failed. I think one there are two two songs that come to mind for me that are almost as good as Fade to Black, you know, that follow the template and almost live up to it. Uh and one of them is Return to Serenity by Testament. Uh uh-huh. but and the other is Cemetery Gates from Pantera. Uh, I was gonna say Cemetery Gates. I, yeah. I think the in particular the end of Cemetery Gates might be, you said on this album was your favorite intro, like the greatest intro ever. The end of Cemetery Gates might be the greatest outro ever. I <laughs> it, adore. It is pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh, just the way that his guitar follows Anselmo's, uh, just, well, wailed, versa, it's just yeah. so good. I used to be yeah. able to hit, to sing along with that. I used to be able to hit those high notes. Not anymore. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie and say I could even come close to that because I couldn't. But it, uh, uh, I but that's a good 20s, example. Yeah, too old. Cemetery Gates is a good example. Yeah, Cemetery Gates is you know one of the greatest metal ballads of all time. Uh, as I say, it's not quite as good as Fade to Black, but agreed. But it is you know it gives it a good run for its money. Um, so all right, so uh, of course, as we would have known it, that's the end of side one. What you know? side? I mean, let's just recap that. You have fight fire with the fire, ride the lightning, for whom the bell tolls, and fade to black as a side one. I know, I know. I mean, that's almost good enough to just be the album. <laughs> it could have just been an EP, man, and right. you could have walked away, and it would yeah. still be, you know, looked at as this seminal work. Absolutely, yeah. Just four fantastic tracks back to back. You know, like like we said, they really were just firing on all cylinders. Uh, right, but, but if we didn't get side two, we wouldn't get two, we wouldn't have gotten two of the greatest songs Metallica ever wrote. Yeah, uh, right, and and I know exactly which two you're gonna, which two you you mean. Yes, so yeah, let's flip it over. So we open side B with Trapped Under Ice. <laughs> Now, what's cool about this song is this is... Oh, so what you did there. Uh, oh, you like that? <laughs> uh, th- this is a riff that Kirk Hammett brought over from Exodus. There's an Exodus song called Impaler, which finally came out on the album Another Lesson in Violence from 1997, that the main riff of Trapped Under Ice is uh, basically a riff that he wrote for Exodus way back in the day. And so 
in a lot of ways, he is the driving force of this song, which I thought was really cool. I think that's really interesting because one of the, I, I know that this track divides Metallica fans. I love it. I think it's a really, really great track. Um, but one of the things that I love most about it is that main riff. Yep. Because it is so blindingly fast and aggressive and it's not especially heavy in the sense that, you know, it's not deep or anything, but it is just so fast and like, but you know, just drives along at a million miles an hour. Uh, it's a great well, opener for side two. Oh, it really is. The intro to this with those weirdly timed chords. Yes. That's like, which, and then not in, and you're like, wait, what, what, what's the timing here? What's the rhythm? And then it just yep. bashes in with a, holy shit. 100% agree. And I, I, I think that, uh, this is a great, this is a perfect opener for side two. Yeah, I, I agree. Especially after the sort of relatively, I mean, the end of Fade to Black isn't mellow, but obviously it's not as fast as, you know, a lot of the, some of the earlier tracks. So after that and that fade out, to come back in with this and just, yeah, once again, smack people in the face. Uh, I love it. Really good chorus as well. The third bar of the chorus with the chord change is what seals it for me. That's what makes it such a great chorus. And it's simple, very, very simple, not a complex piece of songwriting at all, but it works. It is so effective. Um, yeah, as I say, I know this track divides. Well, and you can uh, just hear people, the audience yelling, I love freezing, it. you know, like the, there's right. again, parts of the chorus where you're just like, this is the anthemic. It, it has all the ingredients for me. Yes, it, it does. It does. And if you don't like it, it is fairly, you know, compared to some of the tracks on this album, mercifully short, you know, it doesn't waste any time. It's as long as it needs to be. Right. And absolutely not a second longer. Totally agree. Uh, and when it does end, we then get on to track six, uh, Escape. You talked about songs that divide Metallica fans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people that don't like this song, um, which I don't get at all because I... Uh, so for those people that don't know, like this this was uh, people accused Metallica of basically selling out with this song. Right, of trying uh, because, to make something that would get played on the radio. And here's what Lars had to say about that. He said it was the last song that was written for the Ride the Lightning sessions, and it was purposely kept a little shorter than the other songs. We thought of it in the spirit of Iron Maiden's Run to the Hills, or Judas Priest living after midnight. Dare I use the words radio songs? He said, so instead of turning it into an eight-minute seek-and-destroy type of thing, we kept it on the short side, then it got a bad rap, and I don't know why. Um, I feel like this is one of the 
more upbeat songs, I, I feel like it's the perfect palate cleanser for the last two songs that you're going to get on this album. Like I, I love the place that it's, I love its placement in the eight songs on this album. It, it, it has more of a punk feel to it because it's, you know, uh, uh it's just simpler. Right. But it's that whole, like, this is my life, man. I'm going to live it the way I want to live it. Like that whole thing of oh, like, right, yeah. you know, being unshackled, being able to, to do what you want to do. It's that, it's the thing that, that most hard rock and metal bands were in punk bands and everything else. It's that, it's that whole rebellion thing. And so I feel like that fits perfectly here. It has a little bit of an MI evil feel to it, to me, um, as I listen to it, but it's more upbeat. I love the air horns that come in at about three and a half minutes, uh, with the sort of, uh, chorus just being repeated in the background. I love that. I think that's great, dude. I agree that its placement on the album is, is kind of great. Uh, you know, it's kind of perfect for this song. Um, no question about that. I, to me, I don't hate this song at all. There is nothing wrong with it, but to me, it has always felt a bit like a B-side because it's lacking some of the same qualities as the rest of the album. It just doesn't, like I say, it's it's a good song. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't have the the energy of the thrashier tracks. It doesn't have the epic grandeur of the slower tracks. There's just, you know what I mean? There's nothing to quite push it over the edge, whereas every other track on this record has something to go, wow. Whereas I feel like there's no wow moment with this track. And that's the only reason, like I say, I don't hate it, but that's the only reason why I think, I do think it is the weakest track on the album. See the what? air horns in the chorus to me that come in at three thirty. I do like is, the air horns. <laughs> is, that's the, that's the sort of hairs on the back of my neck moment for this song. So it has that for me. It has that right. um, element that sort of really drives it home to me. But, uh, but yeah, interesting that a, a lot of people did not care for this song. Well, and I believe it's only ever been played live once. And that was when they played the entire album. Like, you know, they played the Ride the Lightning in its entirety. And that's literally the only time this track has ever been played live. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's an urban legend, but I remember reading that some time ago and thinking like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, although you mentioned the lyrics. One, we haven't really touched that much on. One of the other things that was kind of innovative about this album was the subject matters and, you know, James's lyrics. Because up until this point, most metal albums were, well, were following Black Sabbath, frankly, you know, or maybe Judas Priest, lyrically. And there was a lot of wizards and f- elves and right. robots. There's a lot of uh, D&D. UFOs. Right, yeah, lots of sci-fi and fantasy themes, you know, Satan and hell. Uh, and, you know, just lots of what we think of. It were Dio sort of style, you know, and nothing wrong with that, obviously, you know, but that was pretty much what all metal lyrics were about. And then along comes, and you know, that was even the case on some of kill Em all. And then along comes this album and there's not a single song that deals with magic or wizards or elves or fairies or robots or aliens or UFOs or, do you know what I mean? They're all right. From a lyrical standpoint, absolutely. Right, from a lyrical standpoint, they are all the only, the closest thing to that really is creeping death. But of course that's based on a biblical tale. So right. you can't, you know, it's hard to argue with that. But yeah, that was so it, it again, kind of set a template of like, hang on, we're going to do a song about nuclear war. 
Like, right. and not about how cool nuclear it is to live in the post-apocalyptic fallout, but right, how, right. But how yeah. terrible nuclear war is, really? Uh, and of course, no, that's just, that's what metal became. Again, talking about the influence, that's what metal became. It became very normal within the genre to have songs that deal with those kind of social issues and rail against war and, you know, corrupt politicians and all that sort of thing. And a lot of that started with this album. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on to... Creeping Death, track seven. certainly one of metallica's best songs ever oh well i mean they still play it now don't they it's still a classic they do although they didn't staple. i don't think they played it when i saw them at july i'll have to look i have the tracks from when i saw them last year but i very clearly remember hearing it when i saw them for the first time live on the injustice for all tour and i will never forget what it's like to have an entire arena of people just chanting die die <laughs> die and it was just it's one of my favorite concert memories of all time and this song i mean yeah just absolutely crushing uh just yeah the intro i mean the intro oh. alone as soon as you hear that you're like yes yep <laughs> and the fact that it's the seventh of eight songs on this album right yep. so you've already heard these amazing songs you've already had all these great songs and whereas most bands have already run out of ideas by the time they get to this point. You get creeping death at number seven. Yep. Yeah. That's what, insane. What a riff. That long roll that Lars does to begin is and even even then, even in nineteen eighty four, that was a cliche. But it doesn't matter because it just works so well on that, you know, to start it off and then like bang into the main riff. Uh Ugh. great chorus, like heavy and catchy which is not easy to pull off as many bands have you know proven over the years but it is a really heavy chorus and it's really catchy another well, great solo just another great solo yeah, yeah. absolutely because a, a bad solo on this song uh, and actually that was one of my notes one of my favorite hammett solos was that that was my note on this song because a bad solo would have taken this out of cl- iconic status i agree yeah. so like this is a song where you could have screwed it up a bad solo could have screwed this song up but he produces one of his best solos for this song. And that change at 340, man, where the drums start thumping in and you just get the riff. Oh, it's just with die, die, die in the background is like, it might be my favorite Metallica song. 
Wow. Well, it's, it it's one be. of my favorites, no question. Um, it's just so good from start to finish. It's up there, yeah. And I just say, I just, the intro, and then they revisit the intro, obviously, a couple of times during the song. Again, this sense of drama and melodrama, even, but not being afraid to be a bit theatrical because it, if it works, do it, you know? Uh, yeah, I just, and the end as well, that is how you end a song. None of this fade out bullshit. That is. <laughs> Like, this right, is how you right. end a song. This man. cemented your hatred of the fade out <laughs> because you were like, this is the exact opposite of all the other bullshit out there. Yeah. Well, this is, this is like a motorhead ending. This is how motorhead yeah. ended like 90% of their songs. <laughs> but, but here's the best thing. Not the best ending on the album in terms of like epic song endings that do not fade out. No, no, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. So let's move on to the final track, track eight, Call of Cthulhu. Dave Mustaine's legacy to Metallica here, right? The last song on the album, an eight minute and 55 second epic. Nine minute instrumental, man. (laughs) That has so much great Cliff Burton in it. Oh, yeah. uh, But really is a very bittersweet song for me because it shows you at the same time what where Dave Mustaine was going to go and what they could have done together. But if it had, if this had to be the end cap on his time with Metallica, what an end cap it is. What a way to go out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then you throw in the Lovecraft on top of it, which I know wasn't necessarily him. Um, but it just, it's just beautiful. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of shitty instrumentals, even oh, yeah. on Metallica albums, uh, but in metal albums in general. Well, this and again, is not one of them. Kill Em All, correct me if I'm wrong, Kill Em All doesn't have. Oh, no, just it does. An, it has anesthesia. Just uh, anesthesia, yeah. which uh, Cliff Burton, I could take an, a whole album of Cliff Burton you know, playing uh, <laughs> bass instrumentals just because the the what he the sounds that he gets out of his bass are unlike anything that anybody uh, else absolutely, yeah. can create. Well, and the war on this one, the growling bass yes. on this track is so good, man. So yes, good. it's so good. And but but anesthesia, I don't really. I mean, it is an instrumental, but I don't think of it. You know, it's only right, him right. and Lars. It's not Correct. an instrumental in the sense that 
that this is. And again, kind of set the tem- set the template. How many metal albums after this came out suddenly had long instrumental, you know, sort of dramatic, epic-sounding instrumental tracks on them, often to finish off the album. And what's cool about this song is is how a Lars largely stays out of the way of yes. this song. Like he he doesn't tread on what Burton or Mustaine are doing in the song, right? He there are these great things when it gets simpler where it's just almost like um this this sort of ascending chugging that the main riff is doing. That's where you hear Burton underneath just like going crazy. Yep. Kind of build it like going four times as fast, you know, building the the same sort of rhythm underneath it. It's so good. Like there's so many great payoffs in this song. Um, the op- just the opening introduction to the song is such a otherworldly. Yeah, yeah. Opening. The first minute and a half. Um, yeah. And not only is this the foundation of this is this is there was two Megadeth songs that I count that are directly that Mustaine basically repurposed some of what he did here for them. Um, and one of them is one of the songs that Megadeth is known for. If you go and listen to the beginning of Hangar 18, it's called oh, yeah, Tula. Yeah, yeah. Um, e- even I knew that, yeah. <laughs> which is but amazing in that it's not a carbon copy of Call of Cthulhu, and it is also one of Megadeth's greatest songs, right? So that's kind of amazing that he was able to then do that for that. And then there's a, a song that's a bit more throwaway off The World Needs a Hero called When, and it's very much uh taking heavy influences and in, in repurposing some of Call of Cthulhu. It's nowhere near right. as good. But to have him have crafted one of the best Metallica songs and one of the best Megadeth songs off of pretty much the same material is kind of crazy. It's kind um, of impressive, yeah. It is kind of impressive. And they're two extremely different songs. But um let's talk about that ending. Well, hang on, wait, before we get there, I was going to say that one of the things, because this is the thing, Mustaine, and you know, I've made my criticisms in the past about the emphasis on technicality over songwriting and all that sort of stuff. But one of the things I love about this track is that it is not a virtuoso showcase. Like there right, is not Ingve Malmsteen. Right. There is nothing here that is all that difficult to play. You know, if you are a competent guitarist, you can play this track without too much effort. Even the solos, compared to some of the stuff that we've already heard, Sure. On the album, they they are not you know complex, amazingly virtuosic solos, um, and that in itself is, I mean, a it's surprising given that you know it came from Mustaine or a large parts of it anyway, but also because it means you know they they sat down and said, okay, so we're going to end this album with a nine minute instrumental uh-huh. that is all about mood and atmosphere rather than showing off our technical skills, even though this is only our second album and we have basically built a reputation on being a really, really fast technical band. Um, That is balls. Like, that is confidence in your own taste and your own judgment and in, you know, your ability to basically do anything and your fans are going to like it. Well, and it's also them basically saying, like, we're going to ensure that no one else is going to be able to do what we just did. Yeah. Like we we are going to we're going to put an end cap on this album that is going to cement the fact that no one is like us and that we are doing something that no one else is doing. And so it it is it is just the it's the icing on the cake. It is the exclamation point at the end of the album. It is them basically 
dropping the mic after this album and saying, good luck topping that. that. Yeah. Yep. Anyone, yep. anyone, anyone go, if any, any of the bands that we grew up listening to, any of the bands that are c- going to come after us, follow that. Right. The student has become the master and all it's that. It's the statement um, album. It, it really well, is. It is the, actually, this is Metallica. That relates to one other thing about this track. Again, before we get to the end, I have always felt, and I don't know if you you know, have agree or have a different sort of reference point. But I have always felt that this track more than any other Metallica track actually owes a debt to Iron Maiden. Like I could imagine this on almost any early Maiden album. Um, you know, from that sort of like the, the early to mid eighties period, there is something about it. There's definitely an influence there. Yeah. Something about it that just always makes me think, yeah, this is the, like, let's do a track like Maiden track, you know, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, again, not a bad thing. Just like it's, but yeah, it's uh, interesting. And then, and just yeah. what what Cliff brings to the song is like it. It almost brings tears to my eyes because again, it is it is Cliff Burton and Dave Mustaine <laughs> together. Like it's it's so good. It's just like it, it's such a it's such a great song to revisit, man. Because you can really just sit back and and just live in it oh yeah yeah, yeah. you know it, it's it, a, it's a, a moody soundscape that's for sure um and then it ends with <laughs> i love i love it's the, the mic drop oh no no before the mic it's, drop i love the the audacity oh actually no maybe it is after right so you got the false ending yep yeah yeah so you got the false ending where it goes back to clean guitars and you think oh yep. this is how it ends and then like haha no and i can't remember whether actually now whether it's before or after that but that they bring in fucking timpani <laughs> i yep. mean the audacity of all things like of uh, you know a young snot-nosed metal band uh-huh. go, oh yeah we're gonna have orchestra timpani like for the big drum roll right at the climax of our nine minute instrumental <laughs> <laughs> and it is like it's basically like them saying it is them saying like top that yeah it's like fuck this you. was <laughs> it's like them walking off the stage like we we just created the greatest album of all time now what yeah like it it's just like <laughs> what an amazing way it just drives home in your mind as you're listening to it like i just listened to one of the greatest albums ever created. Yeah, you're like, what did I just hear? <laughs> and it most definitely makes you want to flip that back over to side one oh. and start listening to the whole thing all over again. Yeah, no question. It achieves that sort of, you know, Because goal it brings you back track. through the whole journey, right? Yeah. And you're just like, man, think of the ground we covered on this album. Yeah. It yeah, is right. like... It, it's it's only 48 minutes long. but Eight it, songs. Yeah, but it feels so epic. But it's a journey, and it is a. They cover so much musical ground on this album. It really is like if if I could take one Metallica album, like after spending another month with this album, it's like this this album really just it has it all. It has everything that I love about Metallica in one album, and it's just such a such a collaborative, like wonderful amazing album to go back and listen to it really is it really is so all right i think we've i think we've just about exhausted our fanboy love of uh (laughs) yeah so for anybody out there who believes that i don't like metallica or that you know i have some sort of uh vendetta against metallica 
Um, it's clear, you know, how much of a Dave Mustaine fan I am, but I am, I am equally a Cliff Burton fan and a early Metallica fan. And this album for me is just a joy to go back and listen to. When I saw them in May of 2017 at Gillette Stadium in uh, Boston, eh, or Foxborough rather, they played uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, they played Fade to Black, and they pay, played Fight Fire with Fire off of this album. Oh, wow. They played Fight Fire with Fire. Man. Yeah, as part of their encore. Wow. Um, I don't think I've ever heard them play that live. So, and I think they do, because I, I know you know this now, but they basically record every show, and you can go... And you can buy the live right, they've recording. Become fish, yeah, <laughs> which is kind of awesome. I mean, again, because I hadn't seen him in twenty five years, and so to be able to then, and I took my son to the show, so to be able to then go back and purchase the recording of the show that we just went to, pretty awesome. Um, and I think they were they they do swap out on a regular basis, like one or two songs, so that not every set list is the same. And I kind of dig that um, because oh, for a lot I, of bands, I thought like they did they, that. With a lot of songs, more than just one or two, I thought I read that they regularly just you know change the set list. From I'm night sure to that night. some of yeah. our more ardent Metallica fans will, will be able to tell us that, but I know I know Absolutely. there is uh, some variety in each night's set list, which is not something a lot of other bands do. Uh, most bands, in fact, have their set list that they go out and play, and that's pretty much what they stick to. Maybe they'll swap out a couple songs over the course of the tour or something, but um, not on a nightly basis. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. But I think when you're, when A, you've been around for this long, so you, you know, you've got to figure, especially the older stuff, they can literally play it in their sleep now. You know, it's well, just I think they like, realize they so that, well. But that, also because uh, they've got so many different generations of fans attending the shows now. So they've got kids or people like your son. Yep. You know, who, like, Christ, was he even born when the Black Album came out? No. Nope. Let, let alone this, you know? <laughs> no, he was born in 2003. Right, yeah. So he was born God, so when... even post the Load era. Yeah, exactly. Jesus. Um, he, when did St. Anger come out? 2004? Oh, Do you know what? Now that you've said that, I think he might even have post-dated St. Anger, which is just, I mean, if you want to feel old, you know? <laughs> But to, to build on, uh, 2000, June 2003, it was released. Right. So St. Anger came out the, the year that he was born. So wow. uh, so he only has been alive for the St. Anger, Death Magnetic, Hardwired to Self-Destruct era of Metallica. You might say he got the short end of the stick in terms of his, uh, you know, eras of uh, Metallica right. that he's been alive for. But if he goes to for. see them live, they well, he will hear this old material. And the cool thing is, and to, to go along with that, is I think that they realize that there are people who have come to see them that maybe haven't seen them in 20 years right. or that this is their first time seeing Metallica, but they've grown up listening to their music. And so the idea that they will mix in different classics on a nightly basis to give people a chance to hear some of their favorite songs, um, even some of the more obscure ones is kind of awesome. Well, and the um, other thing I was going to say is because they are so successful now, they regularly, as I understand it anyway, they regularly play more than one night in the same venue. You know, they will do a two or three night right. run. Yeah, they do. In the same venue before moving on. And you know, you know that there are going to be a, a fair number of fans who go to all three of those nights, you know, who for go to sure. every gig or whatever. And yep. so I think that's a way for the band, and I'm sure this must have factored in the decision, you know, that's a way for the band to make sure that those fans get their money's worth by not playing exactly the same set list night after night. Right. And they still put on a hell of a show. 
you know, Metallica's still great live. Yeah, they do everything in the round now, don't they? They have done for some it time. It is kind of in the round. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of when they rolled out those gigantic drums and played the 10-minute, you know, <laughs> drum thing when they did that. But but again, there's a spectacle to it, right? And they do, I mean, they have like 50-foot-tall video screens behind them, so it doesn't matter if you're in the ultra nosebleeds, you're getting, you know, whatever videos they're showing and then cuts to different camera angles and stuff like that. So they they put on a hell of a show. Yeah. Well, and I think, again, I haven't seen them since they started doing shows in the round. I haven't actually seen them live in quite some time. But uh, from what I've seen on, you know, YouTube and stuff, they have mics positioned at every side of that round. So basically, James can move and face from mic to mic, mid song even, and face different parts of the audience. So even if you're sat somewhere where normally you might think, oh God, all we can see is their backs you know, over the course of the night, you will, they will face you as they perform. And I think that's if I remember actually kind of commendable. I think at Gillette, it wasn't a true in the round. I think there was uh, the the rectangular stage and the background to that, but there was almost like a, a diamond shaped uh, part of the stage that came out. That was, it was sort of like half in the round where right. they could, oh, okay. and they had those mics put throughout. So you're right. I mean, he did take different positions along that sort of walkway over the course of the night, but I I might be wrong about that. I'm sure people have seen them. Sure, uh, I, yeah. I think probably in a lot of venues they would do it fully in the round. Um, it, it's certainly in the stadiums and stuff where they're able to, yeah, where the facility, sure. where you know they're physically, logistically able to do that. I just think that's a really commendable thing because again, you know, Metallica tickets ain't cheap. I was just going to say, I mean, you're paying like seven hundred dollars to go for the evening if you're going with more right. than a couple of people. So it's good that they put on a good show for you because it's one of the, you know for a lot of people it's the only show they can afford to go to that. That's year. what I was going to say. This may you know people who go and see Metallica these days, you may it may be the only time in your life that you're going to see them. So I think yeah. it's really commendable that they have the video screens and they do the stuff in the round and they you know try and make sure that no matter where you're seated, you're going to have a good time. Yeah, I can't. I'm trying to think of what I paid. I paid well over a hundred dollars a ticket for nosebleed seats. Yeah, I mean, at this point, Gillette. it's like it's like going to see the Rolling Stones, isn't it? It's you know, yeah. It's a- but again, it was one of those things where I, you know, over the course of like a two year period, wanted to take my son to see as many legendary bands as I could, and we actually just capped that off with our Judas Priest concert. Concert. So he's, you know, he's seen Metallica, Priest, Megadeth, Anthrax. Uh, and a bunch of other Queensryche, a bunch of other bands, Saxon. Um, so to have him there, like it was worth, I, I, I didn't care how much it cost. I was no, going to be yeah. taking him to that show for sure. Yeah, well, it's like when I went to see uh, the Giants play before New York. I went to, um, to New York Comic Con a few years ago, and the Giants were playing at home the weekend before. So I deliberately went out a week in advance so that I could watch them at, yep. uh, you know, at the MetLife Stadium, and that, and I took a couple of friends with me and paid because I was inviting them along, so I paid for everyone. It cost me a fucking fortune, dude. Yeah, that's like, what I just for did for the Padres seats, game. Yeah, yeah. just unbelievable. Holy shit! You know, like we're sat literally six rows from the top of the stadium, and it still cost me several hundreds of dollars. You know? Yeah, it's but so funny care. to say that. I, I literally just did that in San Diego I, when I was out there because the Padres were playing at home, and I took my boss and her husband and my buddy. And I just bought tickets for everybody right, because I yeah. was like, we're going. Right, because it's your this. shout. You're like, look, yep. I'm the one who wants to go. So you come along. You don't have to pay. Yeah, yep. you know. Um, but yeah, and but the same as you, I have no regrets, you know. No, Because I'll probably never do it again in my life. Uh, so I didn't care. It was just, let's just do it. Pay the money. Have a fucking great time. And we did. 
And they yep. won. Hey, you beat the Falcons. Hey. <laughs> so if you get a chance to see Metallica live, know that they still put on a wonderful show and it's definitely worth it, especially if you either haven't ever seen them or you haven't seen them in many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, I'm trying to think when the last time I saw them was. God almighty. It was, God, it might've been at Milton Keynes. It was a long time ago, dude. <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm, my, the last time I saw them before this was on the Injustice for All tour. Oh, wow. No, it wasn't that. And Queensryche opened for them on the Operation Mindcrime tour. Oh, wow. So that was the tour I saw them on. And then I never saw them again until this past May. Well, no, because that's like, you know, that's your perfect gig, isn't it? All you needed was Dave Mustaine to come out with a guest appearance and (laughs) and you would have died. The the one thing I was sad (laughs) is that I couldn't get to New York to see the Big Four performance when they all sort of played together. I would love to have been able to go to that. Um, and who knows if they'll ever do anything like that again, probably not now that Slayer is going to be retiring, but, uh, yeah, it was great. It it felt right to go back and see them again with my son. Like that felt, that felt like everything came full circle. Yeah. You're passing the torch onto the next generation. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Let us bring it to a close there then and say, as always, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, remember, if you do enjoy the show, if you like listening to us uh, yak on about metal, then please tell your friends, spread the word, rate us on iTunes and Google Play and all those places. And of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and our Twitter accounts. Or of course, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And that is the end of volume three. Uh, for real now <laughs> with this being the bonus <laughs> we're track. serious this time yeah we really do mean it this time so uh once again as always there is at the end of the volume there is no homework uh because we will surprise you with the first track of volume four uh we don't know exactly when that is but we will uh record it again sometime soon and be back in your ears before long so in the meantime take care and keep thrashing take care Hmm, this is going to be a long episode. (laughs) To nobody's surprise.